0: Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on the climate together. I'm here with Kylie Walker, the CEO of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. Kylie, it's fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Kylie. I'm gonna start with a question that I'm asking everybody. If you could wave a magic wand and Australia would be the ideal place for you in about 20 years, what would that look and feel like? Well, that's a beautiful
1: opportunity. Australia in 20 years' time, I think from my perspective, would be clean and green, first and foremost, and diverse and inclusive. And I think that we have an opportunity to be a a technologically forward and global leading clean energy powerhouse that is built on the kind of research and application of knowledge that Australia, we know, is very capable of, of creating but that includes a whole range of different people in that ecosystem, in that knowledge creation and application ecosystem, so that we know that we have the most robust and inclusive and testable approach to that knowledge. And so that we make the most of every opportunity to build a thriving economy.
0: That's great. I'd be interested to understand a little bit more from your perspective, when you think about a clean and green economy, what are some of the benefits of that? What would it look and feel like to live in an economy that is differently configured than the one today? We would
1: have zero waste for a start. So we wouldn't have that all of our rubbish goes to landfill. We would be able to build in from the beginning processes that account for being able to dismantle and reassemble the components of of the products and the pieces that we manufacture or that we buy and use. In that sense, we'd start to see waste as a design a design failure rather than an assumed end point for the stuff that we produce. We'd be able to have an electrified um, transportation network. So uh, we'd be looking at not just private transport and cars and the infrastructure to support them, but also our freight. And we do have a lot of freight needs in such an enormous geographic area. We'd also be Generating most of our energy from renewables and uh, looking at other clean ways to generate electricity and deliver it, not just across Australia, but potentially exporting it to the world as well emissions would be very low because of that. And that opens up a whole lot of other possibilities. If you're starting to decentralise um, electricity production, for example, it, it opens up a whole lot of other possibilities for well, what we now call telecommuting, but I suspect is just going to be working in 20 years' time. And particularly for delivery of those services to remote and regional areas of Australia. So we might find that our cities are starting to look pretty different when that happens too, because why would you battle with Traffic and commuting, if you don't have to, if you can live somewhere that is an environment that supports and nurtures you as a person rather than is convenient to access
0: your work. Great. Thank you. Very helpful. I talked a little bit about the fact that you're the CEO of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering, but I'm interested to understand more about what that means and what you're working on at the moment. So, the Academy is essentially a network of
1: 900 of Australia's leading experts in technology, applied science and engineering, and they're people who are at the top of their game um, or who have been game changers across those disciplines in the private sector, the public sector and, and the academic sector. And that means that we have this extraordinary opportunity. We have an access to a network of not just some of the best thinkers in the world, but also some really influential leaders across a whole range of industries. We've mentioned energy already. And transportation, but also infrastructure, all kinds of different sectors, medicine, obviously, and pharmaceuticals. What we do with that network of leaders and, and that network of experts is that we provide tailored and best available expert advice to the government, primarily the federal government. We also do that for business leadership, but people who are making decisions for Australia's future. We have a mission, in fact, to help Australians understand and use technology. For the improvement of our society, our environment and our economy. And that comes through in a number of ways. At the moment, what we're focusing on, I suppose, are three key areas. One is climate change and that's mitigating and adapting to climate change using the best and most appropriate available technology. One is nurturing our young people, exciting and supporting them to pursue a career in STEM and to acquire the skills that are essential now, but are going to become even more essential to the, the workforce of the future in digital technology as well as in science tech, and uh, engineering and mathematics. And the third is to support a thriving economy and a thriving uh, ecosystem that enables Australia to really amp up its capacity to apply the knowledge that we create. We're really good at creating knowledge. Our academic research is the top-notch by global standards. What we're not so good at by comparison with some of our OECD neighbours and others is translating that research and applying it for commercial benefit or for societal benefit. So that's something that we're really focused on supporting as well. And amongst all of that, we do things like we assist the government to create roadmaps for, for future technology application and growth in the nation. So a couple of the recent ones we've done have been around transport, around technology in the health sector around moving towards a circular economy, but really a, a whole range of different, anything, if you think about all of the different sectors in which technology and engineering play a part, and that's, let's face it, pretty much every sector, they're, they're the spaces that we want to play in. How do we make sure that that is being done really well and really appropriately? I guess finally, the other thing that we're working on, and I think it's deeply important, and it's not going to go away as the priority for us, is helping Raise the profile of and understanding of um, Australia's place as a leader in technology and engineering for 60,000 years. We've really been the, the ancient technology and engineering that has been in evidence in Australia over the millennia. We have absolutely no excuse for failing to integrate those knowledge systems and those learnings into the planning and the approaches that we take now and into the future. So it's something that we're going to continue to work on too.
0: So, a lot to get you very busy. You talked about your network of experts. Can you give us an example of what it takes to be considered an expert and be part of that network? Mm.
1: So you you might have heard of the Royal Society of London, and that's the oldest academy of this kind in the world. It's about 480 years old now. It was established by the leading scientists of the time. And we we're talking about people like Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin and those big names in science historically. We are really the granddaughter of the Royal Society when it established in Australia, gave birth to the Australian Academy of Science, and that then gave birth to the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering, our organisation. And in order to become a fellow of the academy, you need to be elected by a group of your peers for outstanding and game-changing contributions to your sector and to your discipline. So every single one of our fellows has either been a decision maker who has led structural change for the sector, or they have been, and more commonly, they have been a deep subject matter expert who has significantly advanced either the uh, sum total of the knowledge or the approach to a particular discipline or the way in which it's applied in the world. So the 900 people, when you think about the, the population of Australia, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's very deliberately, incredibly choosy because we want those people who are genuine game changers, who've started to, who've shifted the goalposts for their particular discipline or who have invented, indeed invented a whole new discipline.
0: Yeah, I think it's really helpful. It'd be interesting to understand a little bit about how you got into that work. What what was your path?
1: I'm I'm like the uh, Australia's biggest professional fan of science and technology. So I have the absolute delight of being paid to do that. And I've been doing that for some years now. Originally, actually, I started out as a journalist and and I was a journalist because I had a, a deep and still do have a deep and abiding commitment to ensuring that truth uh, and transparency are a central part of a, a healthy functioning democracy. And I, having said that, I, I was always drawn to medical and science type correspondent roles. And when I left journalism, I was the National Medical Correspondent for Australian Associated Press I never really intended to leave it on a permanent basis, but once I stepped out and started working in advocacy, I realised that I liked it even more. And so for the last 16 and a bit years now, I've been working in science, technology and medical advocacy with a range of different non-profits and, and representative groups. So I worked with the Australian Medical Association, the Australian Academy of Science, a few others. Most recently, I was the the CEO of Science and Technology Australia, which is the peak body for the associations and societies in in science and technology. So STA represents around 85 member organisations and they're like the the professional societies for the different scientific disciplines. And and I think through them represents around 70 or or 80,000 people. So I've moved from the mass workforce in science and technology to my current role with the academy I guess, the leadership end of that same sector.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And that kind of convergence of your background in communications and then a focus on science and technology, I'm interested, given that vantage point, in your reflections on what do Australians understand about climate change and why? And at its heart, we're asking that question because we know that Not all Australians understand the same thing. They they don't have the same understanding about what climate change is, about its causes, about what it means, and about what we should be doing to respond to it. And I'm interested, given your vantage point, if you think there are things that if we had the last 20 years again, the scientific community might do differently, are there lessons that we've learnt around communication? Because I feel like it's not ideal. On such a big topic, it would be fantastic to have a really good shared understanding, so that we can have a rich dialogue about what we should be doing. And that's—it's also a little bit unusual. There are a lot of disciplines where I don't think there's a huge divergence on car safety technology or medical, you know. So other kind of science and technology issues is probably more commonality than difference. And yet, in climate change, there's a lot of difference. So I'm interested to understand the role of communication in that. What's worked well. hasn't worked well? Look, I wanted to go back and, and reset the way in which we
1: originally started communicating about climate change. I think it was a huge missed opportunity and we're making up a lot of lost ground now, but in many senses, almost too late. I think one of the big mistakes that was made early on was that scientists, because of their training, because of the way that academics are taught to communicate risk, and also because of the cultural ethos of academia, whereby And particularly science, I think here, whereby there is an expectation that you create the knowledge and you put it out into the world and your job is done. I think that cultural barrier really did the world a disservice in that there were many people who knew and and could prove that climate was changing and could reasonably model out to what that might mean in the coming decades but who didn't feel an urgency or a cultural imperative around communicating that to the public, nor around communicating how we might approach changing that. The few who did do that were outliers. Some of them were very deeply disrespected by their community because of the fact that they had gone out more publicly and seen or felt an urgency to communicate in the news media as well as in the scientific journals. That's changed now. It is still changing but uh, there's much more of an understanding of the necessity to be able to communicate your research, your academic research to a general audience and why that's important. Scientists are still leery of advising people what they should do with the information that has been communicated and that's perhaps the next step that we've got to take. But really, if we could go back, I would say, firstly, more people communicating with more urgency would be terrific. Learning how to do that in plain language learning the difference between a scientist's understanding of risk and the general public's understanding of risk, because that's been another hiccup, I think, in terms of, or another disconnect in terms of the way that people understand what's going on. Margin for error is another one. So uh, a scientist will have a very particular understanding of what it means to communicate the margin of error. And it's very important to be able to do that as an academic, as a member of the public who's not an academic, It can look like people aren't really sure about their their statistics. People aren't really sure about their findings. And we know that's not the case. The fundamental big missed opportunity is allowing the uh, lobbyists that have a vested interest in continuing the status quo to own that narrative publicly and to bring in the language of belief. Because really, this isn't about belief. Science is not and never has been about belief. Science is about putting a hypothesis, testing the hypothesis, proving it, reproving it, retesting it, adjusting if necessary. It is the antithesis to a belief system. And so when we have a public discourse about climate change that uses the language of belief, it makes it almost impossible for the bearers of factual information to win any given discussion because they are painted as evangelists, they're they're painted as believers. So if we could go back And change it. That's that's probably the biggest thing that I would change is get in early and just not make any room whatsoever for the language of belief to enter this discussion. I think as well, what do we understand now in common? I think there's an acceptance now that I didn't even see a few years ago that climate change is real and that it's happening. What we're still seeing though is a disagreement about why it's happening and what we can do about it or what we should do about it. Language is really important. We all feel that everybody understands the world and speaks about the world in the same way that we do as individuals, but of course they don't. And every, every sector and every discipline has its uh, special code. Every tribe has its special code. So you might be able to make your message known really well within a particular organisation or a particular um, group of people who've got a particular common uh, background, but it isn't necessarily heard in the same way by a different audience. So speaking to the audience and the audience's needs and the audience's understanding is paramount. It's absolutely critical. And you might see, for example, a phrase like global warming. It it enables, unfortunately, it enables for misinterpretation and argument because you might get snows in Texas and people will say, look, we're getting snow in Texas. How can the planet be warming up? Because you know clearly it's actually colder. And using common language in a way that is commonly understood is incredibly difficult and can look a little bit like dumbing down. And so that's something that people who are accustomed to speaking in highly detailed and technical ways probably feel a little bit allergic to doing. But it's also important, therefore, to have people like me Who are able to speak or understand what the perspective is from the non-technical and for the non-technical audience, work with those people who are experts, ensure that plain language approach is absolutely 100% rigorously appropriate and based on fact, but use the language that is commonly understood rather than the language that is specific to that particular tribe.
0: It's fascinating that you talked about how some scientists early on who went out and talked to the press rather than just publishing in scientific journals got a hard time from their peers. That's not something I've really thought about before. So is there a bit of a sense that it's crass, you know, not done? The point is not to seek publicity, the point is just to kind of do the work and then somebody else will take it forward and you've provided the evidence, you've provided the proof, that's your job and, and anything else is a bit egotistical? Or what was the kind of, criticism that was leveled at those people.
1: I think, uh, think... yes, you've you've hit the nail on the head, really. When you think about the way in which scientists are taught to communicate and to write up their papers for for academic journals, the whole premise is that they remove the self from Mm. the language. They're taught from day one, before they even get to university and start specialising, they're taught that the scientific method requires almost a universal pretense that a person's not involved. It's all done in the third person. It's all done in a neutral language in, in such a way as to imply that th- these facts speak for themselves. There was no person involved in presenting them. And I think that has pervaded the culture um, of academia to the point where in this particular instance it has become not only not useful but actually quite damaging because there is an expectation that if you are working in the pursuit of knowledge to be you are about that pursuit, you have to be without ego. You have to remove yourself entirely from the situation. The next implication of that is that if you go out there and speak about your work in a non-traditional forum for academia, if you speak about your work with leadership, if you speak about your work um, in the media, if you speak about your work on social media, that you are demeaning yourself somehow and you're demeaning the, the profession somehow. Now, as I said, that has changed now. We've still got a little bit of change to go, but There is a much better understanding of the benefit of communicating your work to a general audience, not just in climate change, but in science more generally. I think the scientists that I've worked with over the years have deeply understood the benefit and almost the social obligation, really, to ensure that the knowledge that they have created or the knowledge that they have discovered to be communicated to broader society, because really, what's the point of advancing that knowledge if we can't benefit from it? So there's a growing understanding that it is actually part of the job to talk to the public and decision makers about your findings. What we haven't got to, though, is what do you do about it? And I think I think that whether we need a whole different group of people to come in and say, okay, these are the knowledge creators and these are the knowledge appliers who ought to be coming along and saying, this is what has been found, here is how we're going to address it, or here are three different ways to address it, and here's what's going to happen if you do it this way or this way that that's the part that we are I think we really need to to focus on much more stringently now rather than saying someone ought to do something about it lay out a pathway say here are the things that you can do about it and here are the consequences if you choose a b or c
0: yeah in a way that's part of the ethos of common ground on climate which is that actually we need more people at the table I don't think the solution is necessarily in requiring any particular group of specialists to pick up all of the parts of the problem but it's actually about bringing a whole lot of different expertise and specialist knowledge to bear but really working together then to come up with answers. You touched on it a little bit but I think it'd be useful to hear it in really common language that idea of the margin for error and for people who remember way back when and again I was not in the scientific community but but hearing these things as came out so the the global research that comes out and is peer reviewed through the IPCC which aggregates a bunch of research each time that came out and it came out every few years there was a commentary about the margin of error and each time that margin of error got smaller and if i remember correctly the question that was really about was not is this happening because i, I think there's was a lot of confidence around is this happening but you were saying that we don't have still a shared understanding in Australia on is what's the cause is it because of human activity and that margin of error is something that every scientist has to put in every paper that they ever write but most of us are not reading academic papers and most of us are not hearing about the output from academic papers in the newspaper that to your point that's actually not something we're reading about a lot so people are not used to that language so can you just give people the plain English understanding of what a scientist means when they talk about a margin of error and what a normal range is I'll give it a shot (laughs) better you than me I I don't know (laughs) if I
1: can yeah no I don't know if I can answer what a normal range is but but okay let's see how we go on this it is any science, that's true. But if you're looking at science that involves modeling and making assumptions, then you're going to have a, a much greater chance that you're going to get one component or a couple of components slightly off. And that's going to have an impact on the end result of, of where your model goes. You think about the system called the planet. Like this system has so many different inputs, and some of them are being managed by people and the way that we. Live and work and behave on the planet. And many more of them are being created by the natural world, both on our planet and in the universe around it. It's an incredibly complex system. And so it would be a lie for anybody to say, I know precisely how all of the different parts of that system are working and what impact they're all going to have on each other. And if we push a button in this place on that part of the system, a light's going to go on precisely in this place at that part of the system. What is possible, though, is to be able to say, based on the knowledge that we have about all of the different components of the system and based on our observation of what's happened in the past, if we push the button in this place, then it's highly likely that the light will go on in that part. So you do have to, as a scientist, when you're writing an academic paper to be published in a journal, in order to be taken seriously, you have to account for the fact that you don't have all of the information, that there are going to be inevitably some unexpected potential factors that come into play. And that's that margin of error. You can't say unequivocally that A plus B equals C when you're looking at such a complex system. It doesn't mean that they don't know what they're doing though and I think that's the bit where that kind of gap um, occurs because those who are not routinely reading scientific papers or academic journals and that's let's face it most of us are not routinely doing that perhaps expect and have been taught to expect that scientists have knowledge that is absolute and therefore when a scientist says the potential margin is about two percent say It might go up a bit or it might go down a bit, depending on all those different complex factors. The temptation, I think, is to want something that's a little bit more certain than that. We want the scientists to say it's 100% certain that X equals Y. And so I guess as people, we instinctively interpret the very responsible disclaimer that there's a margin for error as a lack of confidence in the work that's been done. And that's absolutely not the case. It's not a lack of confidence because if there was a lack of confidence, it wouldn't have been published in the first place. There are thousands and thousands of papers that get rejected that never get published because they haven't met that level of confidence or they haven't been able to be tested and verified independently or they haven't been structured in the most appropriate way. So the ones that do make it through to those journals, they've been rigorously peer-reviewed. They've been questioned and interrogated from every angle by other experts in the field. And they have been tested just by being out on the public record because part of the the whole structure of of this system that we have of of scientific endeavour is that your experiment ought to be able to be replicated independently and that the same results will occur. And if the same results don't occur, then we update our knowledge. Otherwise, we'd never get anywhere. We can't say that the experiment that was run in 1915 is always going to be the exact same thing because we, I don't know, we build our knowledge bit by bit.
0: So if you go off and do an experiment and you're sitting in another country, I need to be able to redo that experiment and get the same results. And in fact, there are examples of things where that hasn't happened and then they've been struck from the public record.
1: And look, probably the best known example of that is the the, uh, fictitious link between the MMR vaccine and autism. We've all heard of it. It's a myth that persists to this day, but essentially it was an experiment that was not appropriately conducted. We did make it out into the public and then it has never once been able to be replicated, proving therefore that it's not true. So. Many other people have tried to redo that same experiment and it has not—it it just hasn't stood up to that scrutiny. And so now you let that go and you say that was wrong. We've got a new understanding of the situation. If we didn't have that fundamental capability to independently replicate experiments, verify that the same results came and, and underpin therefore the truth of those, then um, the scientific method wouldn't exist and we wouldn't advance knowledge.
0: Of course, there are studies and results that are published in the public media. Probably people see them more around health most of the time. A study that looks at the relationship between eating red meat and certain types of cancer or exercise and heart disease. Those sorts of pieces of research are being published all the time. There's a lot of kind of news um, journalism around those. But I think, as you said, very rarely, if you went back to the source academic papers, they would have their margin of error recorded there and they vary in their margin of error, but they're never zero. And so that's not recorded. So when you see in the public press, a link between A and B has been proven, or if you eat more vegetables, you lower your risk of heart disease, for example, that research will have a margin of error, but the degree of confidence is such that was able to be published and that link was able to be asserted. And I guess what I'm hearing you say is that link is the link that's been replicated over and over again by many scientists and should be talked about in the same language as we talk about that research on health, but it hasn't always been for various different reasons.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And, look, the media is not without... Responsibility in this sphere as well. I think the media has been complicit in allowing this issue to become politicised, unfortunately. Because, like you say, if the science on climate change had been reported 20 years ago in the same way that the science on nutrition is, is reported, then that debate about belief and that debate about that polarity that comes with the politicisation of an issue would not be, it just wouldn't be a thing. The debate might still be there, but it might be about how do we address it rather than is it real?
0: Big challenges. I I was also interested in looping back to something that you said is part of your work at the moment, which was you talked about technology that Australia's had and engineering that Australia's had for sixty thousand years, and I'm interested to just hear an example of the kind of engineering that you're talking about, so an indigenous technique in some field, and how we are or could be using that insight and knowledge to apply to the modern context. One is aerodynamics.
1: So the tools that were created by the first Australians, incredibly simple, elegant, appropriate for purpose in a way that the rest of the world took tens of thousands of years to catch up on. So the aerodynamics that you look at in a a really well-made and traditionally made boomerang, are uh, very similar to that of a fighter jet. It took the rest of the world a long time to get to that point, so the same point that was reached uh, many tens of thousands of years ago in Australia. There are two other areas that where there are some really immediate and obvious applications for the integration of ancient and modern knowledge systems. And I'm talking about the systems as well as The actual information and the facts in those systems because it's a very different. I've been speaking a lot about the scientific method, but the way of building knowledge for Indigenous Australians has been a very different approach, but it's not any less significant for that. One is around land and water management. And Indigenous Australians spent tens of thousands of years, many generations, perfecting and balancing the interaction with the environment to ensure that. People could live in harmony with that environment in a way that was utterly sustainable. We, in our modern society, have gone a long way away from that. We see the environment or the land as a resource to be utilised in our service. I, I would be deeply interested in looking at how, if we are to approach land and water management with an Indigenous perspective, integrated with modern scientific knowledge and engineering knowledge... How different would that look? I don't know. I don't know the answer to it, but geez, I'd be keen to find out because there's an intrinsically uh, sustainable approach there that I think we're missing out on right now. A lot of the efforts towards reconciliation in this space have been around encouraging and supporting Indigenous people to pursue and succeed in a career in STEM. And I think that's very important and we should continue to do that. But I think alongside that, it is absolutely critical that we do not waste the knowledge that has already been built up in a very different way. And that is really the the deepest expertise on this particular environment, on the Australian environment that we're going to find anywhere ever. But one example recently that has just blown us away a little bit at the Academy of Technology and Engineering is that one of our new fellows who was inducted last year has worked with Indigenous communities to explore in depth the properties of spin effects. So, Australian native grasses, which have been used for many different applications in uh, traditional societies in Australia, have now been based on the properties that this fellow has uh, learned about through talking with and working with Indigenous communities. He's been able to um, apply that knowledge to create a much um, stronger, lighter, and and less um, allergenic alternative to latex so he's created a whole new series again in in deeply in partnership and genuine partnership with indigenous communities who are the holders of the traditional knowledge created a, a process for this stuff that that's creating gloves and condoms and other surgical applications of latex that's made of spinifex And it's not going to have the same kind of um, allergic response that latex provokes in a lot of people. And it's stronger, so it's safer, therefore, if it's being used to protect people against disease and transmission. Yeah, it's a terrific example of the kind of stuff that can be done, I think. And then from the engineering perspective, I guess some of the things I've had in mind are, in Australia we have got the oldest cultural site on the World Heritage Register, and it's an aquaculture site in Budgebin in northwest Victoria. And the people who have it's been in continuous ownership um, for that has survived the uh, colonization of Australia by Europeans. And the people who manage that site, as they have for millennia, they're fish farmers, but they're doing it in a way that doesn't interfere with the downstream of that environment and in a way that doesn't um, deplete the stocks of, of those particular fish and eels and that enables. I guess, a harmonious relationship. So there are lessons there for us for agriculture and aquaculture as well.
0: I think that's fascinating. You use the term sustainability. I think the risk with any term that gets bandied around a lot is it either loses its meaning or kind of it takes on meaning that's not appropriate. What I heard in the way that you were using it was really going back to its origin, which is the idea that we can sustain the life that we want to have on, on on the land so that we can keep being here and keep consuming food and water and and products it's not that people aren't using resources and it's not that indigenous people weren't using resources they were using resources they were consuming energy but they were doing so in a way that meant that they didn't run out of trees they didn't run out of fish they didn't run out of food I I think it's really interesting because I think we often assume that that's sort of oh it's always the way it's been but when you look back in history one of the things that strikes me as a kid we used to watch leonard nimoy the guy who played dr spock used to have this tv show which was you know unsolved mysteries what happened to the people on Easter island what happened to the mayan civilization what happened to all of these kind of groups and we now know and maybe we knew when the tv show came on i'm not sure but we now know that what happened was that they didn't live in a way that was sustainable In the case of Easter Island, they chopped all the trees down because they were using them to roll the big headstones down to compete on who had the biggest headstones. And once the trees were gone, they couldn't sustain the plants and animals to live. And it is interesting. There are other examples, plenty of other examples in which as civilizations, we've made those mistakes. And I have to guess without knowing that the same happened in Australia, that there are indigenous groups who overfished and overconsumed those resources. And that didn't work out for them, and as you said, it's taken a long time to build up that knowledge, and it's really complicated knowledge. And so I just think it's useful sometimes to actually think about what do we mean when we say "sustainable? It's not just airy fairy. It actually means that we can keep living. And the challenge, of course, for us, is there's many more of us. So how do we do that now that there's many more people living in Australia? And how can we sustain the kinds of lives we want to in a way that doesn't mean you all have to not be here anymore?
1: Yeah, I think it's a marriage of philosophy and technology, right? Technology alone is not going to be the answer, although it's it's going to provide many of the pathways to the future. But fundamentally, our approach, I think, has to change from one in which we feel as a species that we are separate from the planet, we're separate from the ecosystems, and that the planet is as, as a resource for us to use, essentially and going back towards an ethos whereby we see ourselves as part of the ecosystem, which we are. We're animals. We are part of the ecosystem. And if we start behaving as if we're part of the ecosystem, it it informs a whole lot of other kind of approaches because we start to understand that there are downstream implications of all of the things that we do and all of the ways in which we behave um, and that we're not isolated from the planet. We're part of it. It is difficult to talk about it in a way that doesn't sound evangelistic, but I, I think that the sophistication of our knowledge about ecosystems is growing exponentially. And over the last 50 years in particular, it's just gone through the roof. And I think that that is what we need to use to inform that, that as well as, as I say, the, you know, the really successful ancient approaches, the ones that have been sustained over many millennia, not the ones that ended up the Mayans and the Easter Islanders. Those are the ones that we can draw some lessons from. And there are some Pacific Island communities that are doing the same thing, that if you're living in a very small place, you need to learn how to live in harmony with that place. Otherwise, your time on it is going to be very short indeed. And I think we can think about the planet as our island in the universe. We need to learn how to live in harmony with all of the other components of this ecosystem of which we are a part. Yeah it doesn't mean we can't use technology to assist along the way because we've got the smarts, why not use them?
0: Yes, and I was wondering, as you were talking about the fact that our understanding of ecosystems has grown exponentially, and then you were also talking back about kind of the modelling, but I mean, part of that is because we have technology, right? So now we can build in these really complicated models and we can have a play. With what happens when you cut off the water supply or you cut all the trees down without actually having to do it, we can model some of those things. And the computing power to do that is now in place in a way that it wasn't even 20 years ago.
1: And it keeps getting bigger and bigger, really much more quickly all of the time, that computing power too. As quantum computers start to come online, and we're not that far away from that, All of a sudden, we get a scenario where in the space of a nanosecond, we're going to be able to interrogate all of the different potential scenarios after you put in all of the data for the modelling. So our models are going to become much quicker and much more uh, accurate very quickly. And that's going to open up a lot of possibilities, but it opens up possibilities for tracking big systems and analysing that data in real time and then applying the lessons of that data analysis in real time. We're not quite there yet, but the next generation of computers, they're going to be transformative. Let me go down to a really small example. You can embed light sensors into the fabric of a skyscraper and those light sensors will be able to, or or can already, these things exist already, can monitor in real-time molecular changes to the the metal that's the kind of core, the skeleton of that skyscraper and communicate back in real-time to a, a central processing area what changes are happening there so that you can anticipate. You'll see one molecule of rust before you start to see rust appear on the outside of of a structure. You can anticipate um, when those stresses on that structure are going to become unbearable and you can preemptively act to protect against that inevitable decay. If you think about that and extract that out or extrapolate that out to a whole systems approach to um, transportation, for example, or to managing energy flow, being able to adjust using extraordinary computer power in real time, how you respond to the different stresses on the system will be part of the solution to providing that continuity of power generation and and supply, for example, that I know becomes a bit of a hindrance at the moment when we're talking about how do we approach the, the solutions to mitigating and adapting to climate change. It's going to be game changing and it's going to happen very quickly once that infrastructure is in place. It's going to be a a leap, I think, on a scale with the Industrial Revolution. It's going to be an extraordinary change.
0: It sounds like you've got a lot of optimism in some senses about the opportunity for technology and engineering in the future. If I asked you, what's your one big idea that Australians could all get behind on climate change? What would you propose? I would say let's
1: work towards having cheap, reliable and renewable energy available to all users of energy. So I think having all of those components are important because renewable is great, but it's not going to work if it's really expensive. Cheap is great, but it's not going to work if it's if it's not accessible to everybody. So we need to have all of those components in place and, and that's something that we can and I think we'll move towards. I think we absolutely can do it. I know we've got the technology to do it. What we need is the will. We need the investment in infrastructure.
0: So cheap, reliable, accessible, renewable energy would love to see Australia be a world leader in that space, it sounds like. Yep, and not just for the domestic market. We can export it too. So we
1: can actually be a, a global energy leader in Australia if, if we decide to invest in that now.
0: Great. Kylie, if people are interested to learn more about what the experts that you're working with have to say, they can go to www.atse.org.au. Is that right? That's the one. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Carly. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you, Liana. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.